Episode 47, How to Find Your Calling and Feed Your Soul with Sean Askinosi. My name is Dan Mason. In 2012, I was overweight, getting divorced, battling depression, and feeling trapped in a career where I was successful but bored and unfulfilled. And it's actually the greatest gift I've ever been given. I used my pain as a springboard to discover my life's purpose. Now, I want to share the same tools and strategies which help transform my life with you so you can live Life Amplified. Sheryl Sandberg has this quote about finding your calling. She says, careers are not ladders, but jungle gyms. Don't just move up and down. Don't just look up. Look backwards, sideways, and around corners. Your career and your life will have starts and stops and zigs and zags. Don't stress about the white space, the path you can't draw, because therein lie both the surprises and the opportunities. If you've been with me for the last year, you know a lot of the episodes in this podcast are trying to give you practical strategies strategies to discover your purpose, to find your calling and to bring it to life. But I love to spotlight the people that have taken the journey and made it work. Today's guest is going to amaze and inspire you. In 2005, Sean Askinosi left a successful career as a criminal defense lawyer to start a bean-to-bar chocolate factory, and he's never looked back. Askinosi Chocolate is now a small batch award-winning chocolate factory. They're located in Springfield, Missouri. Recently named by Forbes as one of the 25 best small companies in America. They've also been featured in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Bloomberg News, and many other national media outlets. Sean Askinosi's chocolate mission is to serve the farmers, the neighborhoods, and their customers, and each other, sharing the Askinosi chocolate experience by leaving the world a better place than they found it. The company is currently sustainably feeding over 1,600 students per day in Tanzania and the Philippines without any donations. Sean was named by Oprah Winfrey's O Magazine as one of 15 guys who are saving the world. He's also the author of the book Meaningful Work, The Quest to Do Great Business, Find Your Calling, and Feed Your Soul, which is an Amazon number one new release. Oh, and if that weren't enough, Sean is also the co-founder of Lost and Found, a grief center serving children and families in southwest Missouri. So many amazing topics that we talk about in this interview, including how trying to prove himself to the world kept Sean from feeling the ultimate joy that comes from serving other people. He'll talk to us about the signs to look out for to know it's time to make a career change in your life. He'll talk about the three key components that will help you decide your next career move. How unmasking our deep deepest sorrow can actually lead us to the joy that we're looking for in life, how keeping a sense of curiosity and trying new things can unlock the keys to your future, he'll discuss the power of kindness, he'll talk about the life-changing lessons he learned from dying people in hospice care, and finally, how healing your trauma can guide you to where you want to go in life. You can find the link to buy Sean's book here in the show notes, and if the content is serving you today, please let us know you're listening, share this with a friend, you can screenshot the podcast, upload it to your Instagram stories. Be sure to tag me at CSC Dan Mason, and you can tag him at Sean Askinosi. That is at Sean with a A W N Askinosi A S K I N O S I E. And you can also give us a follow here on the iHeartRadio app or click subscribe on iTunes. And oh, by the way, we'll happily accept those five star ratings and reviews if you're loving the content this week. Super inspiring interview. A very raw, emotional, vulnerable interview. I love my time with Sean Askinosi, and I think you will too. 
Sean Askinosi. Welcome to Life Amplified, sir. Thank you, Dan. The book is called Meaningful Work, A Quest to Do Great Business, Find Your Calling, and Feed Your Soul. And I think people are just going to love your story because so often we get into the nuts and bolts of, you know, how do you go on a personal development journey? But you've been living it now for many years. And I want to take this back to the very beginning because obviously you made your name and made a career originally as a, as a huge trial lawyer and a criminal defense attorney. But I want to take it back even further than that, because one of the parts of your story I really related to is the fact that by getting into law, you were really following in your father's footsteps. And I think for men in particular, I think that this is a powerful theme that we don't talk enough about. But tell me a little bit about that. Where did the fascination with law begin? Tell me about some of those experiences watching your dad and why at one point it made sense to pursue that career path that he did before you. Well, that's a great question, and I do appreciate it um, because it means a lot to me. So my dad was a Marine, and I grew up in southwest Missouri, and my dad had just graduated from law school when I was born, but had just come out of 14 years of the Marine Corps. And so he was very physically fit. He was kind of a tough guy. And he had been a former drill instructor. So you can imagine what that's like to be raised by a drill instructor. And anyway, he was a hero. And I spent a lot of time as a little kid going with him to the office, going to the courthouse, watching him try cases. And he had a real passion for social justice and a passion for providing legal assistance to people who couldn't afford it. When I was 12, he was diagnosed with lung cancer, and that was really the end of my childhood as as I would would come to know it. And I was really involved. Uh, I was the oldest. Uh, I have a younger brother. And my mom, God bless her, um, she did the best she could. And it turned out that I ended up having to give my dad um, Demerol shots for pain because my mom couldn't do it. Hospice wasn't around then. And I, I wanted to help, you know. So here I am, 13 years old, giving my dad pain shots at all hours of the day and night. And he uh, had this cancer that spread throughout his body. And he was in court the week before he died trying a case. And then he went on a church retreat to a nearby monastery and came home uh, that Sunday and died. And I was with him. And I had been praying that he wouldn't die. And to make matters worse, people from the church we belonged to would come over at all hours of the day and night, this prayer group. And the leader of the prayer group, this man told me never to speak with my father about death, because if I did, it would be a sign of doubt and that he wouldn't be healed. Mm. So we never talked about it. That moment of his death, I was, it was the most desperate moment of my life. I just begged God out loud not to let him die. You know, please let him live, please. And he died. And then spent the next 25 years just trying to accomplish every single thing that I could to try to prove something to someone, I don't know who, that I could be somebody. And um, it was really um, kind of a tough deal. You know, I spent my high school years hoping that, you know, my dad's former law partners would kind of be fathers to me, and they weren't. And, and so I found that when you said, especially this this will resonate with men, I think that's true. And this is, we're in Children's Grief Awareness Month right now, mm. and it's really important to know, especially for, I because I it was a young man when my father died, that it's important for men who have a friend or colleague that dies, that they try to be as best they can involved in the lives of the children and um, just take them for coffee or just 
ask them how they're doing. It doesn't take much. And I had men like that in my life, uh, all throughout my life. And they, they literally changed my life and made a huge difference. And I don't think I'd be where I am today without the men who, in one point or another in my life, kind of stepped up to the plate. And not, I can't say they were a replacement for my father, but they expressed kindness and compassion in a way that I'll always be grateful for. Well, first of all, I so admired the vulnerability of that answer. And when I asked it, I didn't realize how deep into the pool that we were going off the bat. But I really, really honor and respect the vulnerability of that. You said something that resonated with me because I think this was a lot of my journey. This idea of pursuing law and spending 25 years and and you're on the hamster wheel, this idea of trying to be something to somebody to prove yourself. Mm-hmm. That was such a huge motivator for me throughout my years in corporate. It was like I was never satisfied. Every new job, you know, each new level I got to, each new level of income, bigger position, it never really felt like enough. I was immediately on to chasing that next carrot. Did that come up for you in your legal career? And when and when you say that, be something to somebody, you know, was there part of you trying to honor your father in that moment? Or was there more that you had been so in that caretaker mode that you felt like, you know, who were you trying to prove something to at that point? Originally, I think I was trying to prove something to God, Mm. that God, you disappointed me. And I I sure wish you would have let my dad live and I don't need you. So I'm going to prove to you that I can do things and be someone without you. I don't need your help. And I think there was also a a facet of this that I wanted to follow in my dad's footsteps. And when I was young and he was alive, I've always talked about me going to law school and and, uh, being his partner one day. And so it was a dream dream of mine to work with him. So this was definitely a way for me to at least pursue part of that dream by becoming a lawyer myself. And I I had a a passion for social justice, which exists to this day, and it just uh, manifests itself in other ways now in my chocolate business than it did when I was a lawyer. And it's one of those things, and and I know you can relate to what I'm going to say, and that is that I really did love the business. It didn't feel like work to me for almost 20 years, and so I was definitely called to it. It was definitely my vocation for those years until it wasn't. Then my body was um, sending me signals and messages that were basically saying, you can't do this anymore. And in my case, it was like little mini panic attacks in the courtroom, which I was just shocked by. I was like, this is my place. This is where I'm comfortable. This is where I work. This is my craft. And now my chest is hurting in the courtroom. It just, I mean, didn't make sense to me. And I want to give people perspective on this because lawyer jokes aside that people make, I mean, you really were a standout and one of the top defense attorneys in your state. Your win-loss record in the courtroom was huge, wasn't it? I didn't lose a criminal jury trial in my career. Wow. There's a lot of pressure in that, too, let me tell you. Of course. Because eventually, you know, after years of this and families with a loved one in trouble, they would come to my office and, and, and often think that, I could sprinkle magic dust over a case and somehow it would end up okay. And and of course, that's not true. And that's a lot of pressure. You know, one of the things we talk about a lot on this podcast is, you know, the people who are in the soul-sucking job, the career where they're in it for the paycheck and going through the motions. But there's another important conversation in this. The people who love what they do, they're passionate about it. But over the course of 
a decade or two decades or a lifetime, a shift happens within yourself and you feel like it's time to do something else. But what was the moment when you knew that even though this was my vocation or practicing law and defending clients is my calling or has been, that it's time to pivot and find another avenue for it? How did that journey happen? I talk about this in the book and I asked my client, if it was okay for me to share the story in the book and share it now. And it went like this. So I was nearing the end of a murder trial. It was a very, very emotional, hard fought case, very high profile in the media. Jury was sequestered. We we're about ready to give closing arguments and it was a long trial. And my client was accused of first degree murder of her daughter. It was just terrible. And she was suffering from a mental illness, my client, and she believed that her daughter was being sexually molested by her ex-husband. And, I, and mm -hmm. I think there was evidence to support that. And so she thought that for both of them to die would be better than her to go back to her abusive uh, father. And so my client almost died. The little girl did die in a garage with carbon monoxide poisoning. And, oh. and, when, and when she was in a coma and she woke up from the coma, they charged her with first degree murder and long trial. Anyway, so I'd fought with the judge the whole case. We'd, we clashed and, and he'd threatened to hold me in contempt. Just really, really emotional, as I said. The judge called us back into chambers uh, right before closing arguments. And he said to the prosecutor and I, he said, here's what we're going to do. Mr. Prosecutor, you're going to reduce this case down to second degree murder and not first. I'm going to let her plead to that and I'm going to put her on probation. Well, that never happens. You don't get charged with murder and then put on probation. Yeah, no kidding. Especially in a case like this. And so I was a little bit taken aback. I went out to talk. He said, go out and talk to your client. So I went off of this uh, outside the courtroom to this little small room where, where lawyers can uh, have a conference with their clients. I said, this is, this is what the judge said, but if you want me to fight, I said, I can take this to closing argument, which was stupid. I don't know why I said that because the best she could have hoped for was a lifetime in a mental hospital. And she, and this is the pivot. She said, Sean, you've done a good job and it's over. We're going to stop here. She was this tiny little woman, probably weighed 120 pounds. And I started to cry mm. and she hugged me and that was it. There was a role reversal there. I was the advocate. I was the protector. I was the one who was going to keep her from spending life in prison. And she, the roles reversed, and she was my protector. She was the one who was helping me. That role reversal did a, a little ditty on me. And, and to this day, I mean, that, this was years ago. And I had the chance to sort of reflect on that in the moment. I thought, oh boy, something's happening. I didn't really know what. And then as I re reflected on it more and more and more and more, I knew that it was at that moment that I couldn't do it anymore. I just couldn't do it anymore. You know, I hear this beautiful through line in what you've shared with me. From a young age, you were a guy who was taking care of a lot of people in your life, both within your family and then through so many clients that you're advocating for and you're fighting for. But was it in that moment that you just realized maybe you hadn't done the best job of taking care of yourself and giving yourself that same care? I didn't realize it in that moment because the next thing that I did, thinking that I could allay the emotional upset that I was experiencing was buy a 
convertible Mercedes. So <laughs> yeah, right. That's always the answer. I wasn't quite there yet. You know, I knew <laughs> I knew there was a shakeup. So it was kind of a process. Then then I bought my wife this book, Tuesdays with Maury, and oh, one she of my favorites on Oprah, and exactly. And that book changed my life. I probably bought a hundred copies of that book. God literally spoke to me in that book, changed my life. Oh, then yes. that's when things really started to happen for me. Which, by the way, I'm just going to do a plug for that book. If somebody in the audience has never read it, it truly, I think I came across that book in my mid-20s when I first started going to therapy, uh, when I signed up with my first therapist, and that was also a life-changing book for Mm -hmm. me. Because one of the things that he talks about in that book is it's only when you're facing death that you learn how to live. And this plays into something else that I wanted to ask you about today. Was this around the time when you started volunteering at palliative care hospitals and spending time with people who were ready to transition? Yes. I read that. Well, actually, Lauren, who is my daughter and co-author in the book that you mentioned at the top of the show, she's our chief marketing officer. And she read that book to me out loud when she was a little girl. And I would go to the bathroom about every fourth page and cry because Mm -hmm. men are to cry in front of their daughters, not. Mm-hmm. So then, right after reading that book, I co-founded a grief center in my community here in Springfield called Lost and Found Grief Center um, with Dr. Karen Scott, my longtime friend. She was a childhood adolescent grief specialist, and so it's still going to this day. Uh, Lost and Found Grief Center, we've served thousands of children and families who've experienced the death of a parent or sibling. I'm, I'm a facilitator in a teen group still. This is wow. almost 20 years ago, and uh, I'm on the board of directors, and it's it's thriving. But it was right after that, and in, in the process of that, that I started to work in the palliative care department in a local hospital on Fridays. Uh, still, I was still practicing law, and I was searching. That was in the midst of my search. What am I going to do? Where am I going to go? What business will I buy? And I was desperate, man. I mean, that's when I started, you know, taking Lexapro and trying to just calm myself down, you know, because I was in trouble. In those moments, volunteering in the palliative care and holding those people's hands when they're literally in their final moments, their final days, what would you say is the biggest lesson that you learn from people when they're looking back on their life at the end that maybe you took forward with you to help you create this next vision, this next chapter for your life? Well, I think let's go back to one of your favorite parts of the Tuesdays with Maury, which is basically when you learn how to die, you learn how to live. That, I think, is the collective lesson from these years of working in the hospital with patients who are in some state of dying. And the other thing I learned is this notion that we talk about in the book from poet philosopher Khalil Gibran, who says that our greatest joy in life is our sorrow unmasked. Mm. And often, you know, the deeper the sorrow, the greater the joy. And that's what happened for me. I would just visit with patients. I mean, I wasn't a professional and I would just talk to them. And many of these patients didn't have family or friends there and they were lonely and and they were in oncology, cardiology, neurology, wherever in the hospital. And at the end of my visit, I would always say, well, one of the things I do here as a volunteer is pray for people. Would you, would you like me to say a prayer for you before I leave? And 99% of dying people will take a prayer. And then this was the key. I would say, what do you want me to pray for? Tell me, tell me what you want me to pray for, which was the opposite of what happened to me as a 13 year old. So this was another pivot moment for me over and over again when patients would say, well, would you pray that I'm healed today and that I can leave? Or would you pray that I die today because I'm ready to go? Or would you pray that I live two more weeks to my 65th wedding anniversary? And I listened and I prayed their exact words back to them and asking if I could touch their shoulder or their arm or 
hold their hand, and it was their exact words, and something happened in those moments, and what happened was I actually thought about someone else besides me. To this day, I have a huge ego, and you can imagine the ego that it takes to be a criminal defense lawyer. I mean, you you can't do that uh, timidly. And to have a moment where I actually thought about someone besides me was maybe perhaps the most powerful moments of my life. And to this day, and I would often, not all the time, but often walk out of the hospital after this work and walk to my car in the parking lot. And it was as if my feet weren't on the ground. I mean, literally, like I, I thought that my feet were two or three feet above the ground. And what that is, is joy. Maybe some of your listeners will say, well, how, how could that be? This is, these people were dying. It's because it was my joy from my deepest sorrow, from standing at the bedside of my dad, you know, just begging God, please, please let him live and him not living. And then that moment of desperation being transformed into the greatest possible joy that I could ever experience on this earth. And that's what happened. At that point, there's a pivot. You realize that the joy isn't coming from buying the Mercedes convertible, that it (laughs) is through the service of others. It sounds simple in theory, but that's not an easy point for a lot of us to get to. We're always chasing that next material carrot out in the world. Especially not when you're depressed. True. It's even harder then. You don't want to help other people. You're thinking, I can't even help myself. And at some point, to, and I can say this, and I don't mean to be cold in saying this, so I hope the listeners take this in, in the spirit it's intended, but as somebody who struggled with depression for many years, to stay in a place of depression to some degree requires you to be focused on yourself and your problems. Mm-hmm. Being able to make that switch to a service mindset, I think, is so incredible. But what I'm hearing you say is you're at this crossroad where you realize, okay, well, maybe I'm not this person anymore that mm-hmm. I've created that's made me super successful. But who the hell am I? Yeah, <laughs> and, right. Exactly. <laughs> and the journey begins where you got to start finding another road or another path. But you have spoken in the past about the fact that you had no hobbies or interests in your life outside of work. So how do you begin to explore this idea of finding a bigger calling? You know, a lot of times if you went to a coach or therapist, they'd be like, well, what else do you enjoy? But sometimes people have just been on the the, the corporate grind for so long or been in the job or focused on the thing in front of them that they've disconnected from the other things that they love. So how did you begin that process? Three words, big, green, egg. (laughs) That's what I did. That's it. You know, that's where it all, uh, hopefully you can get this show sponsored by Big Green Egg. Yeah, Um, that'd be great. Like you said, I I had no hobbies. My hobby was, you know, reading about blood spatter evidence or new DNA techniques or fingerprints or, you know, that that was my hobby, uh, reading up on that stuff. And so my first real hobby was the Big Green Egg. And I started cooking. I hadn't cooked anything. I couldn't even make a Pop-Tart. I started that. Then I started making cupcakes, baking, lots of cupcakes, and then chocolate desserts. And then um, one day I'm driving to the funeral of a distant relative just by myself. And I thought, I think I'll make chocolate from scratch because I'd really want to do something with my hands. And I wanted to, and I didn't even know where it came from. I didn't even know what a cocoa bean was. I'd never even heard of cocoa bean. I thought chocolate was like some substance that was just melted down from something else. I can't even... I feel so stupid even saying that now. I didn't know. No idea. But I was making chocolate desserts back then. Within three months of that light bulb, I was in the Amazon 
studying how farmers influence the flavor of chocolate by how they harvest the cocoa beans. Wow. I come back from that experience and that was it. I, I knew that I was going to make chocolate and I knew I'd make a lot less money. And I bought a building, started buying equipment from around the world, started trying to teach myself how to do it. And now it's 11 years later. There's nothing more exhilarating than when you find that next thing in your life that feels really aligned with who you are. But then, you know, it's also the matter of going out into the world and being like, I found it. I found my calling. You know, for me, it was like, I'm going to coach people and become a life coach. And people were like, Dan, that's not a real job. The world did not share my passion and enthusiasm for my vision for my life. What <laughs> happens after people know you as this tough as nails, badass attorney driving the Mercedes convertible, winning these high profile court cases? You probably, I would think, had some detractors within the state because you were, you know, sort of flying in the face of them getting a conviction. You go to the world and you say, I'm going to become Willy Wonka. <laughs> essentially. How does that conversation go with your loved ones and with just the people around you? There's a little coffee shop in the bottom of the courthouse that's just for lawyers and judges wait, you know, waiting in the courthouse to appear in some other courtroom. They thought I'd lost my mind. Some of them kind of made fun of me, even to my face, joking about it. And But the conversations that really mattered, you know, like, for example, with my wife, this prayer of mine for five years and this search of what I was going to do next was every day and multiple times a day, my prayer, dear God, please give me something else to do, please. It was at times desperate and seemed out of reach after years. And then when I landed on this, and as, as you say, you know, sort of came back to the world, uh, a la Joseph Campbell, hero's journey, yeah. here I am world, you know, I want to make chocolate. My wife said, I'll never forget this. She said, this will be the greatest challenge to our marriage if you do this. And she said that, you know, very seriously. And I heard it, but I didn't regard it maybe as I should have. And uh, I went ahead, you know, and we're still married. I mean, it's been 31 years. But I will say that in the beginning years of this chocolate business, it was tough. It was really tough. I mean, I went from making a crap ton of money to I now make what I used to pay in taxes. But it's okay. It's great. I mean, I've been doing it for a decade. But you know what? The entrepreneur who's desperate to do the next thing for a variety of reasons, maybe some of what we're talking about now, what both you and I have experienced, you know, where we have literal health issues because of what we're doing, like yeah. you did. And my wife said, you know, I, this, this, I don't know if our marriage will survive it. And I, I went ahead and did it. And she wasn't saying that because she wanted more money or she wanted a Mercedes. It wasn't, it wasn't that. It was, she was worried of, yeah. of what she thought this would do to me. And to us, that was probably the most important conversation that I had about it. But I think in especially the spirit of an entrepreneur, once you've found that, you know, just as you described a moment ago, once you've found it and you're attached to it, in a sense, it's almost like you can't not do it. Yeah. Like what you're doing now. You can't not do this. And so here we are. It's super inspirational when you read it on a page. When you're living it, it is so tough. And, you know, I surveyed my listeners a couple of weeks ago to ask them, what is their number one challenge, frustration or fear when it comes to career transition? And the three that came up the most, and I just want you to speak to this, because mm -hmm. the three things that they said the most were, number one, fear of failure. Number two, fear of money, finances, or their ability to support their family. And number three, that they don't know how to do the thing that they feel called to do. 
they lack the knowledge or skills. Which one of those was the biggest driver for you, or was it really just all three? And how were you able to still show up and take the courageous action to overcome it? When we talk about visioning in the book, and I know you're a proponent of visioning, I think it's really important to understand the intersection of our skill set, our passions, and what the world needs. And that Venn diagram or intersection or whatever you want to call it or journaling, that gives us a sense of both greatness and reality. If I want to be a jet fighter pilot right now, that's probably not going to happen, despite it may be a a vision of mine, to, but it's just, it's not going to happen. And, and so I think it's important to be realistic in this sense. But at the end of all of this, the question is, is the fear and concern and hesitation, is it big enough to overcome the desire and force and gravity that's pulling you toward this thing? I think sometimes that's a dance. I think sometimes there's no question. Things just kind of happen. So I don't think there's a real pat answer for that, but I think it's worthy of exploration. And it's something I would imagine, and I'm betting that you do with your clients, you know, to kind of step through this kind of ring of fire, if you will. And is it worth it, you know, or, and this is important too, you know, is this thing in my periphery a shiny object that just is attracting my attention and not my real calling and passion for who knows how many years uh, in my life. I think it's a challenge. And that's why, you know, thank you for what you do and for being out there and willing to help people um, navigate this ring of fire because it's really important. I want to reinforce something you said about that intersection between skills, passion, and what does the world need? And I think sometimes we get too narrow-minded on one of those. If you're simply focusing on your skill set, if you think of what a skill is, it's just something that you've mastered because you have rehearsed it time and time again. You had many skills as an attorney that you weren't born with. It's just something that you learned and you practiced and you learned your craft over time. But if you're only focused on the skills that you have now, you'll never mm -hmm. think bigger than where you presently are. And I think right. that, that keeps people stuck. Well, what are my skill sets? Well, stop focusing on that and think about what are your gifts? What are the things mm -hmm. that come easy to you? The second thing that you talked about are your passions. I'm all for passion and I'm all for pursuing it. But if you're solely focused on your passions, you're thinking about yourself. How can I do the things that I love that are important to me? How can I get paid for this? How can I monetize it? And there's that third part about what does the world need, which mm -hmm. is really where the fulfillment comes in long term. But mm -hmm. if you're only focused outside on what the world needs and you're not connected to yourself, you're going to be giving and giving and giving, and then you're going to reach a point of burnout. So it's really about walking that razor's edge and finding that sweet spot in the middle mm -hmm. where you can hit all three of those at once. And that sort of leads me into the next part of this, because how did the idea of building a chocolate factory. And one of the things that I believe is that our purpose is never really our job title. My purpose isn't to be a coach. Your purpose isn't to be a chocolatier, but it's helping mm -hmm. you meet that intersection at a bigger level because this company is also not just about the chocolate. You have a much bigger mission. So I was wondering mm -hmm. if you could speak to that and, and how that idea came to light for you to be able to give back in such a beautiful way through Askinosie Chocolate. It's funny you mentioned it the way you did because in the book, and for years, we've used this mantra, which is, it's not about the chocolate, it's about the chocolate. Sort of, as you just said, it's not just about the chocolate. Well, it is. It is only about the chocolate 
because I am laser focused on making the best tasting direct trade chocolate that I can make in the world, buying the best beans, working with these farmers, entering competitions uh, all over the world to receive affirmation, you know, that we're making great tasting chocolate. And it's super important to us. There's only 17 of us full time in the company. It's a family business, really small. On the other hand, it's not about the chocolate. It's about engaging children in our neighborhood and our business, working with farmers. And so it kind of works like this. The vocation of making great chocolate is supported by our vocation of working directly with farmers around the world, in my case, Philippines, Tanzania, Ecuador, and the Amazon, and also supported by, by our vocation of working with students. We have an elementary school program, a middle school program, a summer school program, and a high school program, an immersion program called Chocolate University that we have literally run since the day we opened the doors to the factory almost 11 years ago. The working directly with farmers is born of my grandparents who were farmers not far from where I live now on a little 43-acre farm. My grandparents were there on that farm for 70 years. It was a small farm. They were not highly educated, but they were kind. They were generous. They were sweet, hardworking people that inspire me to this day. And when I work with farmers in fill-in-the-blank country, uh, I believe I'm honoring my grandparents. And I, in some senses, feel that I'm almost with them when I'm with the farmers. And I believe that, um, well, we share profits with the farmers. We open our books to them. We translate our financials into their language. So in Tanzania, our, our financial statements in Swahili. And then the work with students is to teach them that business can be a force for good in the world. So that runs throughout all of our programs, through elementary, middle, and high school. And that program and project and vocation is born of my sixth grade teacher, Mr. Elmore, and I write about him in the book, and he's alive to this day, and you probably know where I'm going with this, but it was when my dad was sick, and he was kind to me. He didn't do anything fancy. He would just write notes on my homework papers, you know, like, I'm sure your dad's proud of you, and you're going to be a lawyer someday, and he was just kind. He knew what was going on at home, and his kindness, even though it was so many years ago, is something I'll never forget. And it's, I want to be Mr. Elmore and our company to be Mr. Elmore to these students that we work with in here in our town in Springfield, Missouri. And here's the thing, working with farmers, working with students is inseparable from the chocolate bars that we make. And I think it's true for whatever product your listeners might be making or services they might be providing. We can't separate who we are as people from the thing we do. And it's true with us. This is not a new age woo-woo thing that my chocolate bars taste good because they you know, are made with love or whatever. My chocolate bars taste great because of who we are and how we behave, which isn't perfect. I'm not setting that up. I'm just saying we do the best we can. We try to listen to the call and respond to this notion of vocation in all ways. And they're inseparable from each other. We can't untangle the knot of all of those things of students and farmers and chocolate. It's just all wrapped up. That's the idea of this. I just sort of had this light bulb moment that went off as you were explaining that. And by the way, thank you for sharing, because I think that that's such a beautiful explanation of your company and the mission statement that you have. But so often people who are stuck 
in a job that is either beneath them or that they're not passionate about or maybe something they were passionate about 20 years ago that they don't love today. They'll always be like, well, I'm not my job. You know, we try to delineate between our work selves and who we are as a person. And what I'm hearing you say is that the sweet spot, to use a chocolate analogy, Mm -hmm. the real sweet spot exists when you stop focusing on what you do and your focus is on being who you are and incorporating that into your work, whatever your vocation is. Amen. I absolutely love that. One other thing I wanted to bring up, because I think we live in an instant gratification society. We're used to pressing the button on our phone and the Uber picking us up in four minutes, or we can Mm -hmm. order the pizza and have it there in 20 minutes. This idea of finding your calling and bringing it to life, it's a mystery and it's a journey and it's a discovery process. For you, this was really a five-year journey to get there, wasn't it? It was. It was uh, five years in some cases, uh, of desperation and panic and depression and anxiety, prayer, all mixed up, all jumbled up. So this this definitely wasn't easy. And I encourage people to not give up. I'm a little bit further down the trail maybe from people who were kind of where I was back in that day. And it's it's okay. It is definitely okay. And I do believe, we talked earlier about Joseph Campbell and I believe the hero's journey is real. I encourage your listeners to look up Joseph Campbell and to maybe read some of his stuff or watch the Bill Moyers PBS interview series with Joseph Campbell and and see if you see yourself in some of the mythology and stories that he tells. And it's these things are true. And by the way, it never ends. So even now to this day, you know, you're talking to me and I'm still on a journey. And Joseph Campbell says that we're called to joyfully participate in the sorrows of the world. And one of the things I want to make sure of as I'm in this company, that I don't become complacent and that I remain vigilant with my eyes open to the sorrows of the world so that I can be part of them. Mm -hmm. Not that I can fix it, but that I can be part of it, that I can be present with it. And that's my aspiration now. You are a driven guy. There is no way that you could accomplish all that you have in your career, both as a lawyer and as a chocolatier, without a huge drive. I feel like I have many of those same qualities. You're at a point where you've grown this company. You know, you've made all these lists of like, you know, Forbes top 20 small businesses, and you've been recognized by O Magazine, by, you know, Oprah's team. You've got a 16, 17-person operation, you said. What is the temptation for you? How real is that to try to grow this bigger and to be like, you know what? We're going to take out big chocolate. I'm coming for Hershey's. (laughs) How do you juggle the appreciation and the gratitude for where you are with that desire to grow and to become more? The way I juggle it is centered in my faith. I mentioned the monastery earlier where my dad was on his last church retreat before he died. What I didn't say is that about 18 years ago, I started going there on retreat myself. Mm. It's a Trappist monastery about two hours from here in the middle of the Mark Twain National Forest. And I've had the same spiritual director for all those years, Father Cyprian. I write about him in the book and he's 87 now. And um, about five years ago, I took the step of becoming a family brother at that monastery. And it doesn't, I'm not a monk. I mean, it just means that when I'm, when I go there, I live with the monks behind the cloister. I have my own cell as they call it. And, um, I wrote a rule of life, which is an appendix in the book, which is loosely based on the rule of Benedict. And this is a, an anchor for me. It's an anchor for me so that when I'm outside in the world and beyond the walls of the monastery, 
that I can somehow practice keeping the monastery in my heart. And that's what I do. And the way it manifests itself and the way this appears to me is usually when I'm traveling to another country where farmers are, but not always. And I will have a tiny sliver moment, matters of seconds, experience of the divine. And maybe it's with farmers or it could be with anything. These moments are almost like a signpost to me. They point me home to my home. And they are affirmations that I'm in the process of discovering my true self, who God created me to be, my soul. And when you are affirmed in that way, not every day, not every month, maybe a couple of times a year, you treasure that. You kind of hold it close to you and you treasure it and you think to yourself, man, this is the divine, you know, this is, this is heaven on earth. When you hold that, you also practice not losing it. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways to practice not losing it, I think, is by not succumbing to this temptation and siren call of culture in North America, which is to scale, scale, scale. And it's a practice. So you're right. It is a temptation. Of course it is. Scaling revenue dollars, scaling competition, scaling viral social media recognition, all of those things are temptations. But I think that we also have to recognize that that pull away from our vocation, that siren call, can distance us from humanity. I'm not saying it always happens, but I'm saying it has the potential to distance us. When we are distanced from others, then we find that that separation leads to more separation and more separation. And then ultimately we find ourselves right back where we were when we were searching for the new passion and inspiration. So I want to hold on to it. And the way to do that is to make this a practice and discipline. For the person who is out there who's standing at the ledge and they're in that job that is no longer fulfilling to them, or maybe they've never had a job that's been fulfilling ever, and they have this just this feeling, the gut feeling deep within that there's a bigger calling for their life, that there is a bigger way that they could contribute and add value to the world. What would you say, what would you tell them to help them either find clarity, to find faith, to find the confidence? What would you say that that would be? I would say that I would want them to answer this question to me. I would want to know, where does it hurt? Tell me where it hurts. Where was your heart broken? Let's go there. And let's see if we can't help you uncover this sorrow and turn it into joy. And when you do that, it's going to create a space in your heart and in your spirit to contemplate your future in a way that you had not imagined possible before. And people can do that on their own. You know, they can read one chapter in my book and put it down and never look at it again. And they can call you. And I'm not, I'm not saying that to just because I'm on your show, but I mean, it's important that we have guides mm -hmm. who are willing to kind of walk these steps with us and to encourage us and to also give us warning. That's what I would say, you know, to the person who's standing there at the edge, they're contemplating this jump. And in some cases, they may be desperate. I would want them to take a deep cleansing breath. And then let's talk about where their heart is broken and the sorrow in their life. And if they say, which sometimes happens, especially among professional adults, and it happened just last weekend, I was talking with a very successful hedge fund manager. And he said, I don't think my heart's ever really been 
broken. I mean, I don't know sorrow. My wife died 10 years ago and she was my high school sweetheart and the love of my life. But oh, I was yeah. like, really? Well, there <laughs> you, you go. Yes. Yeah. You don't. So, I mean, part of our job, you know, yours and mine and others is to help people understand, yes, their heart is broken. Yes. Well, I talk to middle school kids a lot and high school kids. And when I talk about heartbreak, they're all like, yep, mm-hmm, I get you. I know. I know what you're talking about. But when I go talk to professionals that fill in the blank big company and I, sometimes they're, they're reticent, they're like, well, I'm not, my heart's not broken. You know? So this, is, I, this, I believe, is a path to creativity. It's a path to the future. It's a path to humanity and compassion. And it's, it's worthy of exploration, even in the business world. Heartbreak. Sean, what a beautiful, beautiful conversation today, my friend. I feel like we could go for three hours and dig into this. So appreciate your vulnerability today, your open heart, and for just uh, showing up with so many words of wisdom. The book is called Meaningful Work, A Quest to Do Great Business, Find Your Calling, and Feed Your Soul. And, of course, the product is Askinosi Chocolate. How can they find that online? I know you guys are in some fine food stores, but if they want to place an online order, where can they find you? Best way is askinosi.com A-S-K-I-N-O-S-I-E they can find uh, how to buy our chocolate there there's a zip, zip code locator and we ship it all over the United States and happy to do it and then of course social media Askinosi Chocolate I have a blog seanaskinosi.com and I'm happy to engage people there. My email's there. People can email me and ask me questions, and I respond to all of them. Thank you so much for your time today. It's an incredible conversation. Thank you, Dan. Thank, thank you for what you do in the world. Truly, I mean it. Thank you. So many amazing takeaways from that interview. We talk about our purpose and treating it almost as if it's an Uber, that we should just press a button on our phone and it's going to show up at our door in 10 minutes. But really, that process of discovering your purpose and bringing it to life, it is a journey. It is a mystery that unfolds over time. So really having not just the courage to step into a new vision for your life, but the patience to let that manifest, unfold, to learn the new skills required for the bigger dream you have is so, so important. And also, I think the point that changes everything, when you can take the focus off yourself and what you're getting from the world, how much money you're making, how many accolades you're getting, and you can really focus on showing up in the service of other people, that's the sweet spot. You know, that is where abundance lives, when you can give without losing yourself, but also give to somebody else without expectations. I really love the interview. Sean is a special guy. We have the link to buy his book right here in the show notes. Or if you want to order some delicious Askinosi chocolate for Christmas, we got a link there for Askinosi.com. You can find that in the show notes as well. If you're looking for a mentor to help you on the journey to find your calling, to speed up the process and make 2019 the year where you amplify your gifts, that you amplify your impact, amplify your voice, amplify your income and amplify your happiness, I would be honored to serve you. You can go to my website, fill out an application for us to work together creativesoulcoaching.net as soon as you fill that out we'll set up a complimentary 30 minute discovery call to answer all your questions and talk more about how to make 2019 your year thank you so much for listening don't forget you can share this content up on Instagram you can always tag me at CSC Dan Mason please share this with a friend and don't forget I will gladly accept those 5 star ratings and reviews up on Apple if you are so moved to do so in the meantime turn down the volume volume on your negativity. Turn up the volume on your purpose so you can live life amplified. I'll talk to you next week.